Recorded live in Manhattan's East Village at St. Mark's Church in the Bowery, this is The Poetry Project. My name is Judah Rubin. I'll be your host tonight. Um, We have uh, Leslie Allison and Steve Orth um, reading for us this evening, um, which I'm pretty psyched about. Um, And on Wednesday, if you came back, if you come back, should you come back, um, Lisa Jarnot and Claudia Rankine are going to be reading. So um, get here early because there will probably be few seats available. Um, It's in the sanctuary? Okay, maybe there will be seats available. So so anyway, um, also stoked about that reading. So we're going to hear from Leslie first, then we will take a short break, um, and then we'll come back and hear from Steve. So... um, Okay. Um, All right. So, the mystical experience, being governed as it is by the boundless simulation of an other's concretization, uh, cancels appearance. There is a fleetness of foot that guides the mystic and that creates visions that may only appear in text. Leslie Allison's approach of, Mar- uh, approach of and to Martha Stewart, then, and Stewart's simultaneous selves as internet dating profiles, as live-in figures that double and redouble life, um, is or are a mystical experience that ties itself to the difficult numerology that is market share and the concretization of experiential data and the habited cloistering of ritualized attention to the figuration of Martha in and assuming space. In in Allison's uh, Martha Stewart, we are being asked to turn our attention to impossible and palatial realignment of energies that exist in the space of the dream life of interiors, as in, say, Teresa de Avila. The conjugation of Stewart's name of the abstraction of Martha is interiorized as a spatial love, a love of parts of the mimetic cast that opens the space of finite revelation. Please welcome Leslie Allison to the Poetry Project. Thank you so much to all of you for coming and to Judah for that wonderful introduction. Um, I'm going to start with something different. Um, We'll get to Martha, but I think it's important to sort of take a moment. I'm going to lead us through a guided meditation. Um, It's going to be different than guided meditations you've maybe experienced in yoga classes where the end result is peace and well-being. it won't be that. But if, so I'll be asking you to do things and to come with me and picture various um, scenes. Um, and if you ever don't want to, that's obviously your prerogative. Um, but at this moment, I will ask you all to close your eyes. Now, in your mind's eye, picture the frost of capitalism, coating all surfaces, gathering in the crevices, how it whitewashes things like human complexity, subtle existences, and every other crocus that confuses the cold white blanket. Together, I ask that you inhale rage and exhale despair. Hoping to escape the frost, you walk into your favorite room. It is a ghost room called the library. I'm not leading you to it. It is a thing that is happening. 
You are looking for origins. On your father's bookshelf, you find a treatise on rationality. The radio is on. Gentrification is too embarrassing to say aloud, you hear the reporter say aloud. Inhale rage, exhale despair. There are bay windows in the library. Outside, the sky ripples. A whimper disturbs the air. You feel a bleakness as your father tells you and your mom not to lose sight of the real issue, which is that black people need to stop doing things that make white people racist. You attempt to speak, but are powerless and insufficient. And so you wedge yourself into the lazy Susan to hide. Inhale rage, exhale despair. The reporter on the radio repeats, police, police, police. You eye a violent, frost-bitten man in a full plate of robot armor. You eye his disposable henchmen, his cloak of blades, his gentleman of justice. I'm not leading you to it. It is a thing that is happening. A trans woman greets you with a handwritten sign saying, my rights have been violated. I am a prisoner in the neighborhood I live and my home. I'm followed by cops. If I have committed one crime, lock me up. You are moved and attempt to enter the men's shelter where she is staying, but they won't open the door or confirm or deny her presence. You send her urgent telepathic messages. Inhale rage, exhale despair. Your boss enters. She is pretty and idiotic. She says she is worried for the cop she sees down the street. She tells you about how the cop was all alone and might feel threatened by the black kid he had on the ground and asks you if you think she should have called 911 in order to get back up for the cop. Inhale rage. Exhale, despair. To escape reality, you begin to read a science fiction tale about a manuscript that prophesies the end to white rule in America. The synopsis reads, As the native population rises against the hated white masters and magic users work to fulfill the prophecy, the capitalist elite launch a war using cocaine and heroin. I'm not leading you to it. It is a thing that is happening. You are grateful that all you have to feel is an ache. You hear a distant lowing and go to see what it is. You enter the grand old town hall and there is the folk legend, Odetta, standing alone. Her swift claps echo throughout time. Another man done gone Another man done gone 
final clap, you know deeply of the futility of your own instruments, settings, and institutions. You inhale rage and exhale despair. You open your frosted eyes. Open your eyes, everyone. Now look to your neighbor. They might be behind you. They might be to the right or to the left of you in order to emerge from the rage and despair temporarily I'd like you to acknowledge a neighbor pick one by repeating after me whatever I think I know about you whatever I think I know about you is just an approximation An interpretation of your experience that I've rounded up to a fact. Please accept my offering of the benefit of the doubt that under the coding of judgments and assumptions is a subtle and intricate personhood or doghood in that case um, here ends this meditation thank you very much for taking part in that okay okay so now we're going to go into a totally different world um, this is the world of the palace of Martha Stewart. Um, <clears throat> we're going to start sort of in the middle of the narrative and 
the characters just briefly are me. Um, and I've recently sort of been accepted into the fold of the Martha Stewart empire. Martha, sort of the deity of the place. Um, Kate, who is like the Holy Spirit of the place. And Madeline, who is the internet alter ego of Martha. Um, and where we're starting, I have come to the palace with ideals and excitement and independence and hope, and I'm starting to get a sense of the real nitty-gritty of the inner workings of the Martha Palace. Um, Suitors stream out of the master bath, and Martha's high tinny voice echoes off the tile. The tub is full of molten silver. It's how she recharges. Alone now, she is reaching endlessly for an end to her coil. In the morning, Madeline got up and put on her internet face. Actually, that's the only face she has, and she puts it on every morning. Flipping through profile pages, the usual suspects drum out their wares in waves. Do you even know what is interesting about that? I sure don't. To be fair, I know nothing if I'm not high. I just wait for Martha to feed me mashed potatoes with her little fingers, and I suck them until she tells me to stop. But Madeline, she chants a little song in my ear when Martha goes out of town. We built this temple, now let's burn it to the fucking ground. Oh, how I wish she meant this flower. When I went into Martha's room last night to ask if I was allowed to change out of my habit, one of the interns was stoking the embers in the fireplace. One was burrowing her face in Martha's immaculate bush, and the other was singing the day's numbers. Martha Stewart living Thirty-five thousand. 
123.5 million. Maybe now isn't a good time, I said quietly, and exited habited. Martha calls a house meeting. She says, this morning you will hear a work of fine literature. Madeline opens to a bookmarked page and reads aloud, These are my sprays, creams, and lathers, my genders, my flagellations. I listen to Madeline's sanguine voice as the wolfish interns hand out gift bags of skincare products and bullwhips. I'm sorry. I got snagged on the last line. Can't remember what happens next. We are living here like demented gods. The moon is a cloud, the light is a feather. Under a massive set of legs, but over a flash of lightning, the narrow memory is snaking in and out of my cordlessness. Little swells of burning on the desert are absorbed through my genitals. Then I realize the lightning was just a thrashing fantasy of an old friend. I cannot tell Martha my vision. She smells the spirit of death jumping out of the earth, and she will want to harness it. Dear diary, do you remember when I arrived? Back then, the images were straight out of Moby Dick. Noble and navel, ropes, wood, cold steam, lilting truth from room to room, and now, well... My vagina has nerve damage, and it's all I can think about. In the drawing room, I see Kate. Names are not even real words, but Kate is a word. Madeline's palatial shudder creates a vortex that sucks me under like riptide, and dark, moisturized, genderless Kate is endless, forever trailed by Genghis Khan, who puffs himself up and sheds in her shadow. I forgot to introduce Genghis Khan. That's Martha Stewart's dog. (laughs) You may think you know things about Martha, but that, my friend, is likely a mirage set up by her brood of spells, led by Kate, who else? I walked in on Kate conducting them once. The room was lit like photocopied pages on the wall, flickering gifts as they grew tiny specks of age. The halo of a removed flower, the frontispiece is a deflection photographed through crystal or tissue, a dichroic cup, gold ruby as it appears when backlit, pink, molten, sass, salts, glass. It was at that moment that Kate and I made eye contact. We were both dogs, sniffing and snaring, staring I betaed and she alphaed, but in her alpha eyes she whispered, Hi, I was hoping to see you here. As I was saying, Martha was of the independent, dependent kind of them. This is now again a little description of the being in her. Madeline was reading aloud at the house meeting. She sure knows what it's like being in her. The gerunds of action, garlands of movement. Honestly... I'd really hoped there'd be more stoner girls slaying the ghosts of the patriarchy here. Whenever the being in her was in motion, am I in you right now? 
the meeting, the meeting, the meeting, it continues while I am like computer hot, I thought. Feel the mouse pinkness of my tits, I thought. This ban on particular friendships is a sham, and it's blocking my true sex light from bursting tenderly, yes, tenderly, like a tight, hard little peony bud, I thought. Then Martha twisted her lips towards me to say, you dropped a stitch. Martha's skin is neon moire. Her oily hands are dish rags. Even still portions of her appear to be moving. She appliques a life-size, two-dimensional version of every object in the house onto that very object. An applique of a curtain on a curtain, a chair on a chair. So the palace is a quilt. Martha's own body is concealed behind an applique of herself. This house may be the house in which she lives. Marbled curls and peels, distortion. She fingers literally everything. This may be the definition of crafts. Braids are emotions. That grass is flying. Bird song is framing burly waters. I look out. I think about us. I think about all our moms. Thank you so much. All right, so after reading Leslie Allison's poems this weekend, um, I was immediately immediately struck um, with the memory of uh, Steve Orth's Mystical Tarot, which I went back and reread. Um, the work itself, which is a sort of ritualized experience of absenting the poem, um, is constituted by process pieces, which are in many ways uh, the construction or scaffolding that supports what may no longer uh, or uh, what may no longer be poems um, or the poems that never existed or they they sort of cite poems but without as far as i as far as the things that i 've read. Um, uh, sort of speak around the poems themselves. So I'm also thinking a lot of uh, about, or have been thinking a lot about Steve's work that relies on, well, it's not sort of like a, a hollowed out, but, you know, sort of a tunneled through um, reveal of of a poetics of of sort of the unridden. And uh, what, I, what I mean by that is that Steve's prosody leaves off at the point of identification um, and as one of his poems states, right, uh, I was wondering if you had any information. So Orth's poems are forever interrupting or intercutting the chronological, or the personally chronological, and in their voice, uh, voicing leave open the possibility of writing to determine itself, perhaps far away from the poem, basking in the warmth of the of uh, well the, the the warmth of the sun on the beach at the Commons of Speech. So please welcome Steve Orth to the Poetry Project. Hey, I'm going to push this up a little bit. I'm like 6'5". That's good. So thank you all for being here. Thanks to Judah and thanks to Leslie. Day one. I turn the switch to the left. This makes the light blink. A man sees the blinking light and walks towards me. He sets a green plastic basket to my left. I turn the switch to the right. 
This makes the light stop blinking but remain illuminated. I stare inside the green basket. It's full of groceries. Pork chops, a bottle of wine, a box of tea, some apples, some Brussels sprouts. I gaze at them, and then I look at the man who brought me these groceries. A tall man, about mid-40s, wearing a gray suit that's one size too big for him. This is my first customer of the day. Hello, I say. Hi, says the customer. How are you? Am I on the wrong side? No, you're on the right side. You've done everything perfect. I'm just saying hi. Okay. I unload the customer's basket, each item one by one. And then after I unload everything, I begin scanning items. As I scan, I ask, did you find everything you're looking for? There is no reply. The customer is looking at his phone. I shrug and continue scanning. I scan the barcodes on each item of grocery. If some items don't have a barcode, like have you ever seen a cucumber? It doesn't have a barcode on it. For every item that doesn't have a barcode on it, you have to type in a five-digit code. So like for cucumber, it's 94062. After scanning each item, I ask the customer, would you like a bag? The customer says yes. I recommend a double bag to him. The products that he's purchasing might be a little too heavy for a single bag. A double bag will provide the proper support that they need, and a single bag, in my opinion, would be too flimsy. After a short internal debate, the customer agrees to the double bag. I open one bag up and I set it. I open one bag up and I set it on the counter. I grab a second bag with my other hand and I put my fingers all the way into it. And then what I do is I take the second bag and I put it into the first bag. And then once it's completely in there, I spread out my hand. This is the most efficient way to make a double bag. <laughs> After I've made the double bag, I say to my customer, okay, it'll be $42.86. The customer slides a card down a card reading device. As he does this, I begin placing his items inside the double bag. I begin with the bottle of wine. It says, waiting for cashier, says the customer. He's telling me what the credit card reader is telling him. Oh, I'm sorry about that, I say. Here, let me hit my little button. I hit a little button. Is it working now, I ask? The customer says nothing, so I assume everything is working fine. I pack all of his items into the double bag. Heavy stuff on the bottom, delicates on top. I place the double bag on the counter, and then I see a receipt is printed, letting me know that the transaction is now complete. I hand the receipt to the customer. Have a great day, I say to him. I emphasize the word great. The customer, still looking at his phone, grabs the double bag and walks away. I take a deep breath. I slowly exhale. I look down at my hands and watch them as they tremble slightly. I turn the switch to the left. This makes the light blink. I average 41.2 customers per hour at 14.12 item scan per minute. I do this work for two hours, then it's time for a 10-minute break. I remove my apron and walk outside where I drink some coffee, smoke a cigarette, and look at my own phone. This break takes 15 minutes. 
At the conclusion of this break, I quietly returned to my register. I signed back in, I turned the switch to the left, and cashiered for two hours, until my next break, which is a 40-minute unpaid lunch break. On my lunch break, I clock out, and I grab my backpack and leave the store. I walk two blocks to this micropark. I sit on the ground with my back against this one particular tree. I think it's a birch tree, but I'm not sure. It has big scars all over it, like uh, where its limbs must have been cut off. The scars look like carvings of eyes. There are over 20 eyes on my favorite tree. I smoke a cigarette and I eat some pistachio nuts, some salami, and a cookie. I write a quick forgettable poem about giving CPR to a zebra. I smoke another cigarette and stare at the blades of grass. I gather my belongings and walk back to the grocery store. My 40-minute unpaid lunch break takes 55 minutes. When I return to the grocery store, I clock in and go back to register four. I turn the switch to the left and cashier for two hours. Then I take a 15-minute, 10-minute break. Then I cashier for two hours. Then I clock out at 8 p.m. After clocking out, I buy a 24-ounce can of Pabst Blue Ribbon. The Pabst Blue Ribbon costs $1.64 after my discount. I also grab a small brown bag and a large 20-ounce cup of coffee with a lid. I leave the grocery store and I cross the street. Once I cross the street, I place the beer into the small brown bag and then I open the beer. I drink as I walk to the train station. This walk takes 15 minutes. I finish the beer about half a block away from the train station. Then I stop at a liquor store and buy another 24-ounce beer. I step off the main street and drink from the new beer. Once I finish four to five ounces of the new beer, I pour the remaining beer into the coffee cup, and then I fasten the lid. Then I walk into the train station and take the train back to my apartment in Oakland, where I drink more beer and eat Chinese food. I got to drink some Day two. My shift begins at 7.30 a.m. I wake up at 6.20 a.m. I shower and get dressed. I leave the house at 6.40. I take the train to the Powell Street Station. I get off the train and walk 15 minutes to the grocery store. I arrive at work at 7.36. I clock in. I put on my apron and name tag and walk to the customer service booth. I prepare the cashier department for opening. I put the trash, compost, and landfill bins in their proper place. I power on the monitors to every register. I set down plush mats by every register. After I finish these tasks, I walk over to my supervisor, Diana. Diana is 22 years old, studies marketing at SF State, always has some purple in an outfit, and appears flustered at everything that is not awesome. I tell Diana that I need to use the restroom. This slightly flusters Diana. But she agrees. I walk to the bathroom and into one of the stalls where I just sit down and look at my phone. I return at 8.03 and the store is now open. I walk over to my assigned register, turn the switch to the left, and cashier for two hours. And then I take a 10-minute break. On this break, I drink coffee, smoke a cigarette, eat some yogurt, and stare at my phone. The addition of the yogurt adds four minutes to my break, which makes it a 20-minute, 10-minute break. When I return to the sales floor, I say to Diana... Sorry I'm a little late, it's because I didn't come back in time. <laughs> this is my attempt at humor. Wait, where was I? Oh, <laughs> sorry. Diana uses her eyes to transport a telepathic message that says, I'm so fucking pissed off that you always come back late from your breaks. I received this message from her. <laughs> and I quietly return back to my cashier register, and I turn on the light. My average of customers per hour is dropped to 39.2. At lunch, I clock out, I grab my backpack, and walk over to the park to sit by my tree. 
The sun is out, and the tree has absorbed a lot of heat, and it's warm on my back. Sitting cross-legged, I smoke a cigarette, eat a Cliff Bar, and I eat a banana. I take out my notebook. A brown ladybug crawls on my left hand. I watch its movements for a while, and then I write a poem. And the poem is called Cyborg Legs. Nobody believes me when I tell them that I have cyborg legs. Actual cyborg legs. A shark bit off my legs when I was in the ocean, swimming. The doctor wanted to try a new experiment. I signed the waiver, so there you go. After the confirmation that my new legs did, in fact, work, the doctor was found dead. Beaten to a pulp with what seemed like a sock full of doorknobs. His body was found in a trash bin next to a Conoco. I know, it is odd. Yes, I can run fast. What a great poem, I said to myself. The poem took me half an hour to write, and my 40-minute lunch break ends up taking an hour and two minutes. Returning to the customer service booth, I say to Diana, sorry I'm a little late getting back, and then start walking back to my register. Diana stops me and says, you know, you're more than a little late. I can hear a long, brewing frustration coming out of her. This is not a personal matter, I think, and maybe she's been like afraid of this particular conflict and is unsure of asserting herself to me. I can't tell that why she would be upset by my one hour and two minute lunch break, and I feel threatened by her acknowledgement of my tardiness. Looking at, so I, I just kind of like pause and I, I look her in the eye and I just go, I need to go home sick. <laughs> this statement ends the confrontation. <laughs> Diana stops looking at me and then she opens a binder and hands me a sheet of paper. She hands me a form. This form is called team member absence form. I fill out the form and hand it back to her. I leave the customer service booth and I clock out and leave the grocery store. I do not buy a beer. Because if I leave, you know, because I left early and sick, and then you buy a beer, it looks really bad. I arrive at my apartment in Oakland and then I leave again. And I walk four blocks to the liquor store. I purchase a 12 pack of Pabst Blue Ribbon and a small bottle of Ancient Age whiskey and a pack of cigarettes. I return home and I watch a baseball game on my computer, Kansas City versus Arizona. I keep the 12-pack on the floor by my feet, so, you know, it doesn't, the beer doesn't stay cold, but like, you don't have to walk to the fridge every time you need a beer. <laughs> the game ends three hours later with Kansas City winning 6-2. to two. I had drank eight of the beers and a third of the whiskey. I open my notebook and remove my note, I open my bag and remove my notebook. I type up cyborg legs in a Word document and I print it out. I read it, and then I read it again. I feel sensations shooting up my body, like my blood is thinning out, my muscles are weak. I believe that the poem is the cause of this. I email Cyborg Legs to a few of my poet friends. Before I go to sleep for the evening, I toss the last remaining beers in the fridge. I lie, I lie down in bed and put Carl Sagan's show Cosmos on the computer. Episode 5, Blues for a Red Planet. I fall asleep within the first five minutes of the episode. Day three.
I wake up at 11.30 a.m., sweaty and exhausted. I can taste the remains of the beer and whiskey and cigarettes from last night. I can almost chew on it. I lay in bed for 20 minutes, staring at the ceiling. I'm staring off and reenacting my confrontation with Diana. The scene plays out in my head over and over again. In this version, I tell Diana to mind her own goddamn business. Finally, I get out of bed and hop in the shower. I cover my body with soap and then rinse it off. I put a bit of conditioner in my hair. I work the conditioner all over my hair. I don't rinse it out, though. It helps keep my curls together. I get out and dry off. I look in the mirror and my, pa- my face is disgusting. It's puffy and red. I get dressed and I put on it with a pair of gray jeans and an Oakland Ace t-shirt. I sit at the edge of the bed and space out. An hour later, I'm on the train into the city. I'm reading The Wild Girls by Ursula Le Guin. A savage just threw a dying baby into a bush when my phone vibrates. I remove the phone from my pocket. I have a new email from Paul. The title of the email is R.E. New Poem. And this is what Paul says. Hey, Steve. Thanks for sending this poem. It's interesting. (laughs) I'm really curious about the parentheticals that you use in it, like for swimming and full. I wonder if there's a subterranean connection between them, one that perhaps the speaker of the poem is not quite attuned to. I know you're not supposed to swim on a full stomach. God, isn't childhood a terrifying place? And this poem carries some of that how to say flashy dimness of the not-yet-developed mind in its cool tone. Here's a suggested revision. Oh, no, I'm swimming next to my full stomach. Metal legs are cold. I know that legs aren't met, the legs aren't metal until after you're done swimming, but I think your cyborg legs are more interesting. Golly, haven't I said that word a lot? If they're submerged and malfunctioning. If I wanted to see a cyborg working perfectly, I'd watch a nature documentary or something. I arrive at work at 2.25 p.m. and clock in. I put a piece of juicy fruit gum in my mouth to mask the alcohol smell still lingering from my mouth. I walk by the store manager, Robert. Of the many bosses that I have, Robert is my least favorite. He's in his mid-40s, wears a vest with like an untucked shirt, and the dude has baby teeth. He stops me. Hey, so how's it going? Says Robert. It's going okay, I reply. Okay, cool. So where are you today? Where am I today? I say. Yeah, where are you? I'm here in this building to work. Okay. Does he smell the alcohol in my breath? Does he know I left sick yesterday when I wasn't sick? My, bo- my body heats up 10 degrees. So, okay, Steve, where is the grocery store? The, it's in the, this building. Okay, I need you to work with me, Steve. So what city is this building in? It's in San Francisco. Ding, ding! Jim, we have a winner! I stare at Robert. I'm completely dumbfounded. So... Steve, here's the thing. Why are you wearing an Oakland shirt if you're in San Francisco? Do you want me to change my shirt? Do you know why you need to change your shirt? Because I'm, I'm not allowed to wear this. That's right. You can wear a Giants shirt because this is San Francisco, not Oakland, where we root for the Giants here in San Francisco. You can put, wear a plain T-shirt, a store shirt, a vendor shirt. All those are acceptable shirts to wear. 
Steve, you got a hoodie or a jacket? I got a, I got a jacket. Cool. Yeah, go grab your jacket. Cover up that shirt. Okay. I go back to my locker and grab my jacket. I put it on. I walk to the sales floor and my phone vib vibrates. I have a new email from Brenda. The title of this email is RE Poem. This is what Brenda says. <clears throat> Dear Steve, the poem is so strange because it reads as if the shark bit off your cyborg legs and not the legs you were born with and lost. I wish I had an extra copy of Juliet Lee's Mental Commitment Robots because you'll, you'd find a lot there to offload and think about slash through. I think your poem is driving at a pious effect and how it is deployed in so many, too many lyrical poems. But there's nothing to be sure about in your poem. Its quizzical nature is post-nature slash culture. Hope all is well with you despite the trauma to your legs, virtual or otherwise. A fantasy can suffer trauma also. After reading Brenda's email, I look up, and there's a man. He's about a few feet away, and he's staring at me. The man is about six foot five, and he's wearing a bright green visor and a matching bright green cape. Under the cape is a worn-out tweed sports jacket with a poofy blue dying flower in the lapel. He looks like he could be anywhere between 35 and 65 years old. He begins walking towards me. He starts opening his mouth. Pretty busy, are we? Huh? Edible flowers. Excuse me? Where are the edible flowers? Huh? Where are the edible, edible flowers that you sell in this store? Oh, edible flowers are probably like somewhere by like Rosemary and Thyme, but I think, we're all, I think we're out of them. I bought them here before. Okay. Do you know how much they are? No, not offhand. What a shock. Excuse me? Never mind. The man walks away in hot pursuit of his edible flowers, and my mouth becomes very dry, and my whole body begins to ache. My pulse gallops. I stand in the aisle for a minute doing meditation like breathing. I take a deep breath, and I slowly exhale. I slowly walk to the customer service booth, and I am assigned register seven. I turn the switch to the left and cashier for two hours. Then I take a 10-minute break, and then I cashier for two hours. Then I take a 40-minute unpaid lunch break, then I cashier for two hours. Then I take a 10-minute break, and I cashier for two hours. Then I clock out and go home. When I arrive home, it's 11.30 p.m. I open the, Brit, the fridge and pull out the can of Pabst Blue Ribbon. I drink almost half of it in the first gulp. I eat some two-day-old sweet and sour pork. I finish the beer and throw the can in the trash. I sit at the computer to reread Paul and Brenda's emails, and I see that there's another email from Sophia. The subject of this email is Ari New Poem. Here's what Sophia says. Dear Steve, I want to say first off that this is a really interesting direction for you. Really new, and that's exciting. It seems both more personal and yet more estranged. More emotional, yet more guarded in a way. Is this part of a larger project? Because it seems like part of a larger project. Obviously, I'm unqualified to suggest any changes, but now I have a few spicy inspirations to share with you regarding formal choices of this piece. I couldn't help but feel that the poem wants to be pushed formally. I took the liberty of experimenting with some of the vocabulary, trying to dial up the core elements, water, loss, patient-doctor relations, what it means to survive. 
Knowing that, knowing that rather than take offense like some might, you would understand that I'm invested in your project and want your poems to find their full voice. The following may be read more as a suggestive guide than a prosthetic fix or solution. But I do have machine legs. An ocean shark foreshortened me mid-swim. Swim. Swim. <laughs> and when I drifted up and dried, my doctor tried out something new. And it worked. How to tell you? Body who won't believe that my doctor died then as if my winnings were enough. One man's life work spliced into one man's pain. He left me his believer and from him my legs scant sacrifice. Poor God. Sea bruise the shorelines. I would be a car swiftly to zoom where lanes rarely adjust. Speed from my doctor, metal from my meat. Bereavement for my engine to combust. After finishing reading Sophia's email, I jump into bed, and I start an episode of Carl Sagan's show, Cosmos, episode five, The Backbone of the Night. I fall asleep during the opening credits. In the middle of the night, I'm awakened. Loud, startling thunder clapping outside. The windows shake from the sound. The storm feels so close, like it's emerging from the ground. The entire apartment vibrates. I look outside, and the fucking rain is falling sideways. Lightning flashes again and again, and thunder is deafening. I watch the storm for an hour, and I am transfixed by it, hypnotized. My body feels cool and light. Finally, about 4 a.m., I become very sleepy, and I put my head on the pillow, and I fall into a very heavy sleep. Day four. I leave my apartment at 10.43 a.m. and I walk to the train station. I pay my fare and take the escalator to the platform two. Standing on the platform, I check the electronic sign to see when my train is coming. The sign says SF Daily City 20 minutes, comma, 41 minutes. The 20 minute thing surprises me. Maybe last night's storm has messed up the train service. I find a bench and sit down. I pull out a book from my backpack. Do androids dream of electric sheep? I read the first paragraph where Rick wakes up to the sound of his mood organ. I'm intrigued, but I'm having trouble concentrating. I look at the electronic sign again. SF slash Daily City, 22 minutes, 41 minutes. My face feels very warm. I decide to inform the store that I'm running late, and I take my phone out of my pocket. I find the number in my list of contacts and hit the green call button. Less than a second later, and before a single ring, I hit the red end call button. What am I going to say, I wonder? I pick up my book again and turn to a blank page in the back of it. I take out a pen and write on the back page, Hi, this is Steve. There's a delay with Bart, and I'm going to, write a li I'm going to be a little late, like 20 minutes. I finish writing this script and look at the electronic sign again. It says SF Daily City, 24 minutes, 39 minutes. I once again find the store's phone number on my phone and press the green call button. I place the phone to my ear and the phone rings once, and then it stops. It then becomes static noise, like if you were calling a fax machine. I quickly remove the phone from my ear, and I press the red in call button. And then I wait a minute. I call the number again, and the same thing happens. It rings, and then transforms into a loud, loud gargling static. I hit the red in button, and put the phone in my pocket. Sitting on the 
Sitting on the bench, my face has gradually returned to its normal temperature. I turn to the back page of the book, and with my pen, I scribble out the script I had written. And then I wait. It's 11.27 when I get off the train. I take the escalator and exit the station. I walk down 4th Street towards the grocery store. I walk past a Target, three Starbucks, two Pete's, a Chipotle. There's construction on the sidewalk across from me. Everything is loud and crowded. I get to where the store is. I get to where the store usually is. But the grocery store is not there. I swear it's not there. There's no building there at all. It's not torn down or in ruins. It's simply not there. And I, I assumed it was washed away with the storm, but there's nothing there, and in its place is a field, a large field full of tall, fresh grass and daffodils growing in the little patches. I look at my other surroundings to make sure that I'm in the right place, and everything else is as it seems. Like, there's the Nike shop, and there's the fucking Yahoo billboard, and everything is here, except the grocery store is missing. I take my phone from my back pocket to call. Maybe there's someone that I can talk to or figure out where I'm supposed to go. When I take out my phone, I just look at it. It feels heavy, and I put the phone away, and I stare off into this field. The tall green grass and daffodils, I watch them rocking with the breeze. I walk into the field, and I stand there. I try to imagine the layout of the grocery store. I try to figure out where register number six would be. I think I find it, and I stand in that spot for a minute. My body feels cool and sturdy. I look up at the sky, awaiting some other symbol, or maybe some metaphysical explanation. There is nothing in the sky but sky. I take a deep breath, and I slowly exhale, and then walk back the way I came. Thank you. Poetry Project has promoted, fostered, and inspired the reading and writing of contemporary poetry since 1966. Consider supporting us by checking out a reading, becoming a member, or donating at poetryproject.org. 